Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's special Saturday edition of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. I want to thank ExpressVPN for its continued support of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. You probably don't think much about internet privacy on your home network, but ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription. And speaking about gold, the big news is Warren Buffett's new love for gold. After the U.S. stock market closed yesterday, we got a look at the latest 13F filing for Berkshire Hathaway. And for the first time and I don't know how long, in that disclosure was a brand new position in Barrick Gold. Berkshire Hathaway invested over $500 million in Barrick Gold. Now, of course, $500 million may seem like a lot for ordinary people, but obviously it's not that much for uh, Berkshire Hathaway or Warren Buffett, although that is the position that Berkshire had as of the end of June. Now, it's been almost seven weeks uh, since that quarter ended. So my gut feeling is that by now, Berkshire Hathaway has a lot more shares of Barrick than it had at the end of June. In fact, I'm willing to bet that Berkshire Hathaway might actually own another gold stock in addition to Barrick Gold. And the reason I feel that that's possible is because Warren Buffett knows that once his disclosure is made public, right, once people know that he's buying gold stocks, well, now he's going to have a lot of competition. There are a lot of people that like to mimic what 
um, Warren Buffett is doing. And so once it becomes public knowledge that he's buying gold and gold stocks, he's going to have a lot of competition. So if Warren Buffett is smart, he knew that he would have maybe, you know, another seven week window, right, to quietly buy more shares of Barrick Gold before the street wised up to what he was doing and maybe buy more shares of other gold mining companies. Now that the cat's out of the bag, everybody knows what he's doing. He's going to have more competition. And I'm pretty sure that basically this is going to green light uh, other institutional investors to buy gold mining stocks. Because, you know, I've been talking for years trying to convince a lot of these guys to buy gold and gold stocks. And really, it's like beating my head against the wall. I've always found it very difficult to convince people who are managing other people's money to put money into gold or gold stocks. I I have an easy time convincing people to put their own money into gold stocks. But when it comes to other people's money, they just don't want to do it. And I think the reason is that nobody wants to go out on a limb. I mean, because these guys who are managing other people's money, their main goal is not to look foolish and not to underperform the competition, right? So if you are a manager of a pension fund or an endowment and you're going to get reviewed and the key is that you need to just not underperform, what is your incentive to go out on a limb and, and do something unorthodox like buy gold stocks? Because there's nothing really in it for you. Because even if you're right and you outperform, all right, I mean, it's not that big a deal. But if you're wrong and the gold stocks go down and as a result of your bet on gold stocks, you're unorthodox outside the mainstream bet, you end up underperforming everybody else. I mean, you're going to get fired. I mean, why go out on a limb for no reason? In fact, the minute you start buying gold and no one else is doing it, your peers are going to start to make fun of you. So I think the incentives that these guys have, they don't want to go out on a limb. They don't want to risk getting fired by doing something unorthodox. But now when you have the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, right, buying gold, in Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio or gold stocks. And believe me, Buffett wouldn't be buying a gold stock if he wasn't bullish on gold. In fact, gold stocks represent a leveraged bet on gold. So in order to buy gold stocks, you generally have to be super bullish on gold because you want to have an investment that is levered to the price of gold, meaning that it will go up more than the price of gold if gold goes up. So by buying Barrick Gold, uh, Buffett is showing that he's even more bullish on gold than he would be if he was just buying, for example, GLD, which he may have already bought too. We'll find out when they file uh, the next 13F, right, for this quarter. But I think this now is going to put uh, gold stocks back on everybody's radar. And not only, again, does this green light other institutional money managers to buy gold stocks. But now if they don't buy gold stocks and they underperform because they don't have gold stocks, now they may risk getting fired. Because if Buffett is doing it for Berkshire Hathaway, what's your excuse for not doing it for your money? So now instead of people worrying about looking foolish, 
for buying gold stocks. They're worried about looking foolish for not buying them. And of course, the risk is now gone because if you go and buy gold stocks now and they go down, if it doesn't work out, you don't look that foolish because after all, Warren Buffett did the same thing. And so if you're simply doing what Warren Buffett does, right, the Oracle, right, he is the granddaddy. I mean, so if he has blessed this trade, well, then if somebody else makes the same trade, well, hey, I'm just doing the same thing as Warren Buffett, so don't get mad at me. So I think this really is the potential or has the potential to be a watershed moment for uh, gold and mainstreaming gold and gold stocks. Uh, and, you know, not only is Buffett buying Barrett Gold, but if you look at what he's selling, he's selling financials. He lightened up on all of his bank positions. He's basically doing what I already did, right? What have I been telling people on my podcast? Get out of banks and buy gold stocks. In fact, that is the one thing that really differentiated my value fund. And the reason that the value fund was performing so poorly over the past several years and the reason that it's performing so well this year and it went from last place to first place right during uh, in, in 2020 is because one of the key differences between my fund and all my competitors was that I owned no financials in the fund. And the index has a heavy weighting to financials. I didn't like financials. But what did I buy instead of financials? I bought gold stocks. So kind of that was my main way of you know, being different. Now, nobody else would take a chance on doing that because nobody else was willing to underperform. I didn't care about short-term underperformance. I only care about long-term absolute performance. See, most mutual fund managers, they don't care if they lose money in the long run. As long as everybody else loses money, they're fine. They just don't want to lose money in the short run when other people aren't because they might get fired. Well, I'm not worried about getting fired. I got my own money in this strategy. I'm my own biggest client. And so I care about absolute long-term performance. I don't care if I have to lose in the short run to win in the long run, just like if I'm playing a game of poker. I don't mind losing a few hands if it means that I'm going to win at the end, or I don't mind sacrificing you know, a knight in chess if I know that I'm going to checkmate, right? Because I'm playing to win this game. I'm not just playing to be ahead you know, early on. I don't care about any of that. So I knew that in the long run, the financials were in trouble, and I would rather make a bet on gold than paper currency and the whole uh, monetary bubble that I knew was going to pop. So I've already positioned, and now Warren Buffett is moving the Berkshire portfolio to look more like my portfolio, right? He's buying gold stocks, and he is selling financials. Now, he's not completely out of the financials, but hey, the writing is on the wall. And again, we don't know how much more he's sold, because I've been pointing out on this podcast how weak these financials have been. It's been among the weakest sectors. Maybe one of the weak reasons for that weakness is you got all this selling coming out of Berkshire Hathaway. So this, I think, is a big deal. And, you know, after the market closed, you could see Barrick Gold in particular was up about 6% in the aftermarket. And a lot of these other gold stocks uh, were up as well in sympathy. Because, look, a lot of people like to copycat uh, Warren Buffett. But, look, to me... This is better than any of these big Wall Street firms 
coming out with buy recommendations on gold stocks. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised now before the market opens on Monday morning if we get some uh, of these investment banks, these big houses, putting buy recommendations on Barrick. Because if they do that or other gold stocks, you know, and this is like one of the things that's really not fair. But when an analyst puts a buy on a stock or, or raises it to a strong buy or moves it up, they get credit for the price before they make the announcement. Even though the announcement itself may have an effect on the price, that doesn't count. And now, since everybody knows the price of these gold stocks are going to jump up on Monday morning, probably a lot of these guys, before the market opens on Monday, are going to want to put their buy recommendations in so it can count as if they had a buy on the stock before the big jump up on Monday. And in fact, I think not only is this bullish for gold stocks, but it's bullish for gold. Because again, Warren Buffett is making a bet on gold. He now likes gold. See, this really flies in the face of a lot of the criticism that Warren Buffett has had about gold. And of course, it never made sense to me that Warren Buffett was so negative on gold. After all, I remember an article that he uh, wrote a long time ago about Squanderville and Squander Bucks. And Squanderville was America. And Squander Bucks was the U.S. dollar. And that was a very good article that showed to me that Warren Buffett understood the problem. I just think that publicly, he's been trying to put a happy face on this situation. He's been trying to be bullish on everything, bullish on America, bullish on the economy, bullish on the dollar, right? Never bet against America. Well, that's, he's betting against America now, right? He's always said, don't bet against the United States. That's exactly what he's doing by selling American banks and buying uh, Barrett Gold. So the fact that he is buying the asset that he once criticized, right? He said gold is a non-productive asset, which is true, right? Gold is not a stock. It doesn't pay a dividend. Gold is not a piece of real estate. You can't collect rent. Gold is not a bond that doesn't pay interest. Gold is money, right? Because money, if you take dollar bills and stick them under your mattress, well, that's a non-income producing asset also, Right? So in order to get income from your dollars, you need to invest those dollars. You need to loan it out. You need to buy a bond. You need to buy real estate. You need to buy stocks. But what if you think all of those markets are overpriced and you don't want to uh, use your dollars to buy an income producing asset? What are you going to do with them? Well, Buffett's telling you, convert them into gold because he knows if he thinks stocks are expensive, Right? and he just wants to hold cash, he knows cash is going to lose value. He understands that the Fed is printing all this money and he can't get any interest if he just puts his money in the bank. So what Warren Buffett is saying is that I believe assets are overpriced, but I don't want to be in dollars because I don't want to get wiped out by inflation. So while I am waiting for um, better opportunities, I want to buy gold. But He's doing one better. He's saying, you know what? I'm going to buy gold stocks instead because you know what? I can't get interest on gold, but I can get dividends on Barrick Gold, right? As Barrick is in the business of selling gold, 
I can own this company that is going to profit from the rise in the price of gold. So while gold itself is a non-productive asset, gold stocks are. Gold stocks are businesses. And Warren Buffett probably looked at Barrick Gold and said, my God, this is a fantastic business. Look at all the money they're going to make selling gold to all the people who need gold because they want to get out of dollars. They want to get out of euros or they want to get out of yen. So this is a a massive about face. Warren Buffett is saying, you know, now is the time to buy gold. And that's why I'm buying gold stocks, because this is where the money is going to be made. And, you know, a lot of people are also saying, well, you know, this is probably not Warren. He's not necessarily doing it. He's got a couple of portfolio managers. Maybe they made the decision. Look. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I don't care if another portfolio manager made a decision. There's no way they didn't run it by Warren Buffett. Given Warren Buffett's public statements about gold and how he felt, I don't think somebody who works for Warren Buffett is going to decide, hey, I'm just going to buy a gold stock and I'm not even going to run it by the big guy before I did it. Absolutely not. There's no way Warren Buffett didn't approve of this trade before it took place. So he is completely on board uh, with buying gold stocks. And who knows, again, how many more he has already purchased. And this is not only just a big vote of confidence in gold, but it is a vote of no confidence in the U.S. dollar. And by the way, the U.S. dollar index had another down week. In fact, it closed at its lowest closing price on a weekly basis since May of 2018. So that's more than two years since you had the dollar index at a lower weekly close than this week. And I'm going to thank my son Spencer for pointing that out to me on on Twitter. I know a lot of you have been following him, and so uh, you should follow him if you're not already doing that. Um, But, you know, gold, of course, had a down week. Because we got obliterated on Tuesday, right? Gold, my last podcast was specifically on the shakeout in the price of gold. And believe me, a lot of people who got shaken out on Tuesday are going to be regretting that on Monday uh, when we can see a big move up. And of course, we've already recovered quite a bit uh, from that shellacking that we got on Tuesday. So gold did manage to finish the week only down about 50 bucks. Silver, which had that, what, $4 drop, uh, was down about a buck and a half or so. So gold closed the week at 1945, not above 2000, but still above the old record high that we set in 2011. So technically the gold chart is looking beautiful. And of course, it's going to be looking even better uh, when investors have a chance to react to Warren Buffett Sunday night on Monday. Silver ended up closing at $26.44. But you know, another very interesting development that took place during the week was the very, very weak 
30-year bond auction, right? The government was selling 30-year bonds and not as many people as expected showed up to bid. I mean, what's amazing is that anybody is dumb enough to show up to bid to a 30-year U.S. government bond auction. I mean, you got to have rocks in your head to want to loan the U.S. government money for 30 years at such a low rate of interest when the dollar is going to collapse by far more uh, than that rate. Uh, And one of these days, nobody will show up. Right. One of these days, the only bidder is going to be the Federal Reserve. And of course, by then it's too late. Right. By then the dollar is toast. Uh, so you don't want to wait until the Fed's the only bidder. But you can clearly see uh, that other bidders are, are not showing up. And so that caused bond yields to rise. But what is significant about that rise in bond yields that we got is that we also got a rise in the price of gold. Right. And the conventional wisdom and you know, put wisdom in quotes is that rising bond yields are bad for gold, right? Because it's competition. That's what everybody believes. But they're all wrong because bond yields are rising because of inflation. Why is it that people don't want to buy 30-year bonds? Because there's a negative real yield there because the yield doesn't keep you even with inflation. So bonds sold off because people are worried about inflation. Well, if you're worried about inflation, you buy gold. And we're having bond yields in gold rising at the same time. And despite the fact that these so-called experts are scratching their heads trying to figure out why this is happening, this is exactly what should be happening. And this is going to continue to happen. And it's going to confound these so-called experts until they figure it out. Because when you want to take the inflation risk off, you sell bonds and you buy gold. They are not the same type of asset. They are not both safe havens from inflation. Inflation destroys bonds. The worst asset you can own with inflation is a bond, right? So it's nothing like gold. Yes, if you're worried about market volatility, you can treat 30-year treasuries as a safe haven and you can treat gold as a safe haven. But if you're worried about inflation, if you're worried about a weak dollar, then you would never buy bonds because they're not a safe haven from that. They're the worst place you could be. You're right in the line of fire. So if you want safety from a weak dollar and inflation, then the only safe haven that you can choose is gold. Or, you know, you could choose silver, right? Or you could choose mining stocks. So this is big news. We can see this. This is going to continue. In fact, we got the CPI on Wednesday for July, and it was up by six-tenths of one percent. Uh, It was twice expectations, so another upside surprise, just like the PPI that we got on Tuesday. But gold did not sell off on that higher-than-expected consumer price index the way it sold off on the higher-than-expected producer price index. But the big jump was in food. I've been talking about the podcast that food prices were going to go up. 4.6% year-over-year increase in the price of food. Uh, And... If you just look at for eating out in restaurants, it was 3.4%. That number is going much, much higher uh, in the months ahead. I mean, it's going to get very, very expensive to eat at restaurants. Uh, The big uh, increase was in beef prices. Look at 14.2% year-over-year increase in the price of beef. So eating is getting a lot more expensive in America, and you ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the beginning of the price increase. Again, we're going to see price increases across the board. You know, everybody is still talking about deflation. I mean, this is such nonsense. And again, 
you know, they're, they're, they're using the word deflation to describe falling prices, right? Deflation is a contraction of the money supply. So let's talk about prices. Everybody still thinks that COVID-19 is going to reduce prices. Why? Because it's reducing demand, right? That's obvious, right? People are not buying as much stuff. We're not traveling. We're not going out. And so that decline in demand supposedly is what's going to take the pressure off prices. And so the central banks, the Federal Reserve doesn't have to worry at all about inflation uh, because of all this demand destruction from COVID-19. Look, the initial reaction to COVID-19 was a drop in demand. I get that. I talked about that, right? People were caught by surprise. You had all this inventory and all of a sudden people weren't buying and, and prices went down across the board for everything, right? But that's just the first reaction because then the market responds to the reduction in demand by reducing supply. So first demand goes down and then price falls, but now that decline in price sends a signal to the producers that you're making too much. And now production goes down, right? And so after supply comes down to meet the reduced demand, now you get a new equilibrium price, which is much higher, where now the market will clear. And believe me, the new equilibrium price with lower demand and lower supply is going to be much higher after COVID than it was before COVID for everything. I mean, wait till you really see the surge in the price of oil. I mean, I'm just waiting for that oil market to break out. To me, it's going to happen. And it's not just going to be the food prices that are going to be going up. It's going to be oil prices. But, you know, a really good example of how this works is going to be with airlines, right? What happened initially to airlines, right? Ticket prices collapsed, right? Nobody wanted to fly, and the planes were in the air, and so they lowered prices. Everybody was competing. All the, the routes had been scheduled. And, of course, the government was actually subsidizing airlines, paying them to fly the planes, even if there were no passengers. And, and so the, uh, the ticket prices went down. And everybody's like, oh, you see, this is deflationary. Look, look how cheap airfares are. Well, I was reading this article the other day about American Airlines now just cutting a lot of flights to a lot of cities, smaller cities are no longer going to be serviced. And this is what's going to happen across the board. The airlines are going to respond to a big decline in demand for air travel by eliminating routes, by shutting down flights. And they're going to lay off a lot of people, a lot of pilots, a lot of flight attendants, a lot of baggage handlers, right? A lot of people are going to be laid off in the airline industry. And the airline industry is going to adjust to a big decline in demand by raising prices. And of course, we're also getting a big decline in production of oil domestically. And so eventually, Oil prices, jet fuel prices, which have been cheap, they're going to rise too. So we're going to have a much scaled down airline industry where it's a lot more expensive for the people who want to fly. Much more expensive. The same thing for uh, the restaurants, right? Restaurants are going to be reducing capacity. Probably most of the restaurants, more than half of the restaurants are going to go out of business. So there's not going to be nearly as many restaurants to choose from. And the restaurants that are still in business are not going to be able to serve as many people. So the people that they can serve are going to have to cover all the fixed costs and all the variable costs uh, with, with, with on their check. 
And so eating in restaurants is going to become much more expensive. Yes, fewer people are going to eat in restaurants. And one of the reasons is going to be because it's going to be so expensive. I mean, part of it could be because they don't want to you know, get exposure to COVID. But as the whole industry downsizes and now they're forced to charge much higher prices, well, then a lot of people aren't going to eat out because they just can't afford to eat out. But the whole U.S. economy is going to reset with a lower, with a different equilibrium price because demand is going to collapse. And of course, the recession itself, as more people lose their jobs and as the government tries to replace their lost income by printing money and giving it to them, that's going to put even more upward pressure. So real incomes are going to collapse. Real demand is going to go down. And so everything that's actually happening, COVID is actually throwing gasoline on an inflationary fire, right? Rather than being a deflationary factor, it's just going to make the inflation, right, or the rising prices that were set to happen anyway, that were already in the pipeline, it's just going to add fuel to this fire and the inflation numbers are going to be even hotter and hotter as a result of COVID. Oh, before I forget, I want to say a few words about the sponsor of today's podcast, ExpressVPN. You know, ExpressVPN makes sure that your internet service provider can't see the sites that you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure server. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means anything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption so your information is always protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest, most trusted VPN on the market, rated number one. It's the one I use myself. I have the icon on my laptop at all times. And, you know, when I find it to be most useful is once in a while I try to access some content and I can't get it from my area, and so I can fire up the VPN, and I can fool that website into thinking that I'm in an area that actually can access that information. It doesn't work all the time, but it certainly works uh, a lot of the time, and so I'm glad that I have it. Again, it's ExpressVPN, so always protect your online data with ExpressVPN. Use the VPN that I trust. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash gold, and you can get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. Expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. Of course, one of the big stories uh, on the week continues to be uh, what's going to be the next fiscal stimulus? You know, everybody is looking for some type of extension uh, to the expired uh, benefits, the supplemental unemployment benefits, the PPP loans. Congress, I think, adjourned. Nothing's happened yet. Everybody thinks this is a terrible thing, right? They think that Congress has to deliver. They have to give more aid uh, to uh, the public. You know, I keep hearing people say we need more fiscal stimulus. 
I mean, how can we need more fiscal stimulus when we already have a record amount of fiscal stimulus? I mean, the government is spending so much more than it's collecting in taxes. In fact, the government is printing more money than it collects in taxes. We've never seen any fiscal stimulus as big as the fiscal stimulus we have now. And of course, we have unprecedented monetary stimulus. We've never had more monetary stimulus than we have right now. Look, if government stimulus was the answer, the problem would already be solved, right? If stimulus works, the economy would be booming right now. The fact that it's not should show that none of this stimulus works. It's all an economic sedative. What really would stimulate the economy is less government. We need to cut government spending. We need to free those resources up to the private sector. The thing that we need to stimulate the economy is capitalism. Socialism doesn't stimulate the economy, but, you know, everybody wants more socialism. You know, Joe Kernan, who is an uh, uh, anchor on uh, Squawk Box, you know, he, I, I forget, I think it was Friday or Thursday, he came out and he said, you know, we're all socialists, right? There's no, there's no uh, capitalists in a foxhole, right? Everyone in a foxhole is a socialist, right? Just Which is a takeoff on, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. Well, there's no capitalists in foxholes, right? They're, we're all socialists now. Well, Joe, speak for yourself. I'm not a socialist. I'm still a capitalist. I'm not a fair weather capitalist that think capitalism only works when times are good and that when times are bad, that somehow we have to rely on socialism to get us out of trouble. You know, the reality is we need capitalism the most when the economy is bad, when the economy is in trouble. See, when the economy is really good, a little socialism is tolerable. I mean, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. But when the economy is strong, it can absorb the socialism. Yes, it would be stronger without it, but it can still be strong with it. So when times are really good, okay, if these idiots want to have some socialist programs, all right, at least we can afford it. But when times are bad, that's when a little socialism can do a lot more damage. It can be catastrophic. We need capitalism more than ever before, right? That's that, you know, that's what we should be calling for, especially since it's socialism that created the problem. Socialism isn't going to solve the problems that it creates. Only capitalism can solve the problems that socialists create. You know, the probably the thing that made me uh, the most angry was watching Larry Kudlow on CNBC being interviewed by his old partner, Jim Cramer, right, from Kudlow and Cramer days. And Larry Kudlow specifically said in that interview that because we have an emergency, it's an economic emergency, the government needs to go out and borrow more money and run bigger deficits to invest that money in the economy. Now, this is a guy whose basic credo, right, the whole motto of his program was free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. So when Larry Kudlow was in the private sector, uh, you know, anchoring a talk show, he believed that capitalism was the best path to prosperity. Now that he's in government and the number one economic advisor to President Trump, he now believes that socialism is the best path to prosperity. He didn't say, oh, we have an emergency, so we need the private sector to make investments. He said it's an emergency. The government, the central planners in Washington need to go into debt and decide how to invest that money to get the economy going. That is not 
following the path of free market capitalism. That is following the path of socialism, of central government planning. So that is the new credo of Kudlow. He no longer believes that free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. He believes central government planning and socialism are the best path to prosperity. Now, was he right as a private citizen or is he right as a government bureaucrat? I think he was right as a private citizen and he's wrong as a bureaucrat because he's in that foxhole with Joe Kernan and they are all socialists. But I'm in the battle to win. I don't want to cower in a foxhole and just, you know, pray. I want to actually do something to win the war. And what's going to win the war is free market capitalism. Kudlow understood that in the past. Apparently, he's forgot it all now. Now, personally, I still think that Larry Kudlow believes in capitalism. He just believes in Trump more. So he's willing to sacrifice his principles and go on television and lie, right? He's basically pretending that we need more government and more stimulus because that's what Trump is doing because that's the easier way to get elected. I mean, that's why all these people are now socialists when times are bad because they don't want to level with the public and tell them the truth. Right. The way you win votes is by promising something for nothing. And that's socialism. That's not capitalism. So when an election is near, that's when we're all socialists because we all want to buy votes with other people's money. These guys don't have the integrity to stand up for what they believe in, which is another reason that I just don't like uh, so many conservatives that are uh, touting Trump. Look, there's nothing conservative about what Donald Trump is doing. And you got to call him out. Look, you can still vote for him, but hold your nose and vote for him. Don't pretend that he's what you want. He's just, again, the lesser of two evils. You got to be honest about that. Because otherwise, if you pretend that Trump represents the, the conservative ideal, that he really represents capitalism and limited government and sound money, you know, then he's tarnishing all those principles. You got to say, look, Trump is a socialist. His policies are bad, but I'm going to vote for him because Biden's policies are worse. Because at least when his policies fail, you can say, I told you so, right? He, that he's not legitimately believing in limited government and, and the principles that conservatives or libertarians uh, stand for. So don't pretend he's something that he's not. Call him out. You can still vote for him. But don't support him and act like he's a great president. Don't say, hey, he's the greatest president ever. He's not. He's a bad president. It's just that Biden would be a worse president. And so would have Hillary Clinton. So who cares? I just don't want a president who's not as bad as people who would be worse. We need a good president. And let's not pretend a bad president is good just because we think it's good politics. We are headed for a major, major crisis. You know, I think Warren Buffett, gets this now, you know, he realizes that we're still in Squanderville and he doesn't want to own squander bucks. You know, 1971, right? That is the year that we went off the gold standard, right? And the world marked down the dollar substantially in the 70s, but continued to use it as the reserve currency. But remember, the only reason that the dollar was accepted originally as the reserve currency was because it was as good as gold. Because before the world used the dollar, they used gold. And we convinced the world, hey, why not just hold dollars? They're as good as gold. If you have $35, we'll give you an ounce of gold whenever you want. 
But in the meantime, you can take those dollars and buy U.S. Treasuries and you can get four or five percent interest. You're getting no interest on your gold. So, hey, you can have your cake and eat it, too. You can get interest on your gold by loaning dollars to America by buying treasuries. You'll get interest. And whenever you want your gold, we'll give it to you. Well, the minute de Gaulle in France decided to get the gold, that's when we defaulted because we didn't have it because we printed too much money. But the world continued to accept the dollar as if it was as good as gold, even though it wasn't. Well, what's about to happen is just like America went off the gold standard, the world is going to go off the dollar standard. They're going to reject the dollar and go back to gold. That's what they wanted in the first place. You can't back a fiat currency with another fiat currency. Right, because then it has no backing. I mean, if you you have to back your currency with real money, right? and, and and since the dollar is backed by nothing, then it can't back anything. So all these other countries are going to go back to gold. They're going to reject the dollar, and this is going to shake up the whole financial system. But the biggest loser is going to be America, because America has been the biggest beneficiary of this dollar standard. You know, our whole economy has been built on the foundation of the dollar as the reserve currency. That's how we can consume more than we produce. That's how we can borrow more than we save. Well, that ride on the global gravy train is about to come to an end, right? Uh, The world is going to take away this punch bowl and the party is over for the United States. So you got to load up on gold, load up on gold stocks. And now that you got competition from Warren Buffett, right? and Berkshire Hathaway and everybody else, the cat is out of the bag, right? So we're not going to kind of have this field to ourselves anymore. We're going to be competing with more people to buy. And that means we're going to be paying higher prices. But, you know, I know there are some people who think, ah, you know, maybe this is a sell signal. Now that Warren Buffett is in, it's the end of the bull market. Not even close. He's not the last person in. He's not even close. I mean, some of the smartest people on Wall Street are buying gold and gold stocks. But there's not that many of them. And Warren Buffett is in that camp. He is a smart guy. And he is buying gold. He's not coming in late. He's coming in early. It's people that come in in a few years that are going to be coming in late. And even some of the people who copy Buffett early on are still going to be the first movers. Right. So this is not some type of aha, the dumb money is in. So now it's time to get out. Buffett is not the dumb money. He's still smart money and he's getting in early. Is he getting in as early as me? No, (laughs) but he's still getting in a lot earlier than the vast majority of people who are managing other people's money. So this is not a sell signal, not even close. This is just one of many, many more bullish moments that is going to happen in this very, very young uh, early stage of this gold bull market. But one thing it is not is an endorsement of Bitcoin. And of course, I got to talk about this because the Bitcoin pumpers and the promoters did not waste any time uh, trying to exploit Warren Buffett's decision to buy gold as if this is also somehow an endorsement of Bitcoin. I mean, first of all, the fact that Warren Buffett bought gold and not Bitcoin, or he could have bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, this is a further indictment of Bitcoin. Warren Buffett is not worried about Bitcoin eating into gold's market share. He doesn't think Bitcoin is digital gold and it's going to take the place of gold. He is rejecting 
Bitcoin. And remember, he talked about gold as a non-performing uh, asset, and, which it is because it's cash. It's, I mean, it's money. But he referred to Bitcoin as rat poison squared. Right. So these Bitcoin pumpers who are saying, hey, if Warren Buffett was wrong about gold and now he's buying gold, the next thing he's going to do is buy Bitcoin, too. That is never going to happen. There is no way that Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaway will ever buy one Satoshi. <laughs> That's it'll never happen. And in fact, I'd, if I, I, I'd stake my reputation. It will never happen. Buffett is way too smart to buy Bitcoin. He may buy more gold. He may buy more gold stocks. He's never going to buy Bitcoin. And the same thing with other institutions. I'm, I'm reading stuff online. Oh, this is going to green light. Now that institutions are going to buy gold, they're going to buy Bitcoin too. They're not, right? If they're going to follow Warren Buffett's example, that example is buying gold and buying gold stocks. It is not buying Bitcoin. Now, yes, if gold continues to really move up, there are people who think, well, Bitcoin will move up too, right? Because it's just going to follow gold. No, it's not. It has followed gold uh, recently because you, they've been able to tout it and pump it up. In fact, I did see the price of Bitcoin almost get to 12000 It got within, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks at 12000 As I'm uh, recording this podcast here on Saturday afternoon, it's trading in the 11,800s, so it's still at the upper end of the range. And I think a lot of this buying now is based on Buffett. And in fact, not just Buffett, Dave Portney, right, <laughs> that, that, who's got this big following on Robin Hood, the sports guy, he now bought some Bitcoin. The Winklevoss twins went down there and convinced this guy to buy Bitcoin, right? But Buffett, you know, buying gold is a lot different than Portnoy uh, buying Bitcoin. I mean, he'll buy anything. I mean, this guy is complete crazed. He just thinks that stocks always go up. So the fact that he is buying uh, Bitcoin, to me, you know, just as more of an indication of what a ridiculous uh, uh, so-called investment Bitcoin is. Because look at some of the other things this guy buys, right? So this is part of the mania. But with Portnoy, uh, you know, touting Bitcoin and now Buffett going for gold and people saying, ha ha, this is just the first step, first gold and Bitcoin. And the idea that people are going to follow Buffett or not just follow him, but try to jump in front of him by going, you know, passing gold and going right to Bitcoin. I think all of this is what's pushed uh, Bitcoin up to the upper end of this range. But you'll notice it's not breaking through because the smart money is using all the hype of Portnoy and Buffett and gold going up to sell Bitcoin into this sucker's rally. The people who are buying Bitcoin are going to end up being the bag holders. What I would recommend is that anybody who's listening to this podcast who still has any Bitcoin sell into this rally and use your money to buy more gold, more silver, more gold stocks before the prices go much, much higher. But I want to finish up this podcast by talking about the higher taxes that are headed for Californians. And of course, it's not just Californians. I mean, people all around America are going to be hit with higher taxes. Of course, the inflation tax is going to hit people the hardest, uh, except, you know, 
my clients who are smart enough to get out of dollars uh, before they're taxed and, and get into gold and silver and foreign stocks and gold stocks. But California is proposing to raise the top bracket from the current 13.3%, which is already the highest of any state, and they want to raise it up to 16.8%. Ouch! <laughs> That's the state income tax. And so if you look at the proposed increases to the federal income tax made by Biden, right, he's proposing that the tax go up to 54.9%, which is a combination of raising the top marginal tax and then subjecting all income to not just the uh, Medicare tax, but the Social Security tax. So based on what Biden has already proposed, we could see a 54.9% top federal bracket next year. And if California raises its top bracket to 16.8%, that means a marginal tax rate in uh, the Golden State of 71.7%. Now, I know a lot of Democrats, though, are talking about making uh, state income taxes once again deductible against your federal income taxes. So to the extent that that actually happens, then the effective marginal rate will be a bit less than that. It'll still be in the upper 60% if you can deduct your, your state income tax from your federal income tax. But, you know, they may not do that. Or if they do that, it may be capped because the Democrats may not want to be perceived as giving something to the rich. So to the extent that they do make a change in the deductibility of state and local taxes, they may cap that. So it may be that, that uh, they don't uh, you know, restore that full deductibility for the millionaires and billionaires, in which case the 71.7% marginal tax rate could be in effect in California, which means a lot of people are going to get the hell out of California. And the government knows this. That's why they're also imposing a wealth tax. In addition to this income tax, a wealth tax, they will be the first state to have that, of 0.4%. So four-tenths of 1% of your wealth every single year. Even if your wealth goes down, they're going to tax that reduced value as long as it's over a certain amount. The threshold is $30 million for couples and $15 million for single people. So if you're single and you have a net worth of $100 million, then you don't pay the tax on your first $15 million, but you pay the 0.4% on the next $85 million. And you do that every year. And of course, in order to pay the tax, you have to calculate your net worth. Well, how do you do that? I mean, obviously, if you own publicly traded assets like stocks, well, that's easy. You just look at your brokerage statement. But most people who have high net worths, where the net worth is high enough to qualify for this tax, they have a lot of assets that are illiquid. They own private businesses. They have interests in partnerships that do not trade, right? That means they have to pay an appraiser every single year to appraise the business, right? And of course, the government can always challenge the appraisal and say, oh, that's not right. It's actually worth more than that. So they're going to have legal costs. 
but you have to have art. What about your art collections? People have this expense of art. How, well, how do you know what the art is worth? You're going to have to hire an art appraiser every single year to appraise every single painting that you own. Any kind of car collection that you have. You have antique cars. What are they worth? I don't know. Someone's got to appraise that. It is going to be extremely expensive to comply. And you have to file with your tax returns every single year. This tax, if you combine the wealth tax with the income tax, I mean, people would skedaddle out of the state very quickly. And they know that. That is why they are proposing that even if you leave the state of California to avoid this tax, you still have to pay the wealth tax for 10 years after you move out of the state. Now, people might say, well, how can they do that? Right? What legal precedent do they have? That's got to be unconstitutional. How can they tax non-residents? Well, this is their, their theory. They're saying, well, if you generated that wealth, if you accumulated that wealth while you lived in California, well, we have a right to tax you even after you leave. And so they have this formula where you have 10 years and for every year uh, that you lived in California over the past 10 years, right, you have to pay 10% of that tax. So if you lived in California for 10 years, you have to pay 100% of the 0.4%, right? So if you leave California, after one year being outside of California, you get to take 10% off the tax. And so now you only have to pay 90% of that 0.4%. After five years of being out of California, so you've lived five years, let's say in Nevada, but you still have five years in California, well, now you've got to pay half of that 0.4%. So you got to pay the 0.2%. But of course, you also have to pay the cost of doing all these annual appraisals. Now, of course, if you already left California, right? If you left California last year because you wanted to escape, you're one year outside of California, you've already left. And now this tax get passed, you're still responsible of paying 90% of the tax because you lived in California. So they're even taxing people retroactively who have already left the state. See, you thought you got out and they pulled you back in. You're paying California wealth taxes even though you moved out of the state two, three, four years ago. You got to be out of California for 10 full years before you're in the clear. Now, of course, if anyone is dumb enough to actually move into the state of California, right? Let's say you move into California and now you've been there one year, right? Well, you only have to pay 10% of the 0.4% wealth tax. But every year that you're dumb enough to remain in California, your obligation is going to increase to the point where if you live there for 10 full years, now you are paying the wealth tax. Even if all of your wealth was accumulated outside of California, if you move to California, the longer you stay there, the more of that wealth is going to be subject to tax. But all I can say, if, I don't know if this is going to hold up in court. Maybe it will. But you know what California is saying? They are putting a massive sign, neon sign, in front of their state that says, millionaires, billionaires, do not come into this state. Maybe you can come and take a vacation, but do not move here. It'll be the worst decision you ever make, right? We are, we're, we're, it's going to be like the Roach Motel, right? You could check into California or the Hotel California. You could go in, but you can't get out. So you never want to make the mistake of getting in there. But you know what? I, I would not 
just leave this uh, to, uh, you know, for millionaires and billionaires. Because if this concept can actually hold, right, if California could say that if you accumulated wealth in the state of California, then we can tax that wealth even after you leave the state of California. Think about how they can twist that logic into a pretzel to get all sorts of other things. For example, I would never want to go to college in California. Why? Well, what if California says, hey, if you earn a college degree in California, we own you, right? If you go out and make any money in the future based on that degree, we reserve the right to tax you. After all, you're only earning that money because of a degree, especially if it's like an advanced degree. What if you go to law school in California and now you get a job as a lawyer working in some other state? What if California says, hey, wait a minute, you earned your law degree in California. Therefore, if you take that law degree to some other state and now you earn money as a lawyer, we demand our cut. We're going to tax your legal income because you only have that income because you went to a California law school. Think about that, because that makes as much sense as what they're saying about wealth. Oh, you earn the wealth in California so we can tax you even if you leave California. Well, you earned your law degree in California. What about a doctor? You go to medical school in California. You learn how to be a doctor in California. You take advantage of their uh, you know, their university system, right? And then you take that valuable degree to some other state and now you start practicing medicine in that other state, you're not going to cut California out, right? They're going to demand a piece of your action. They're going to want some of your income. Why give these lunatics in Sacramento a chance? Never create a nexus to the state of California. That is what these guys are saying, right? The biggest mistake you could make is to go anywhere near California. Just do not live there for a nanosecond. Don't go to college there. Don't start a business there. Don't do anything there. I mean, you could take a vacation. That's fine. You can go out and you can have fun in California, but do not establish a domicile there. Don't even create the presence. I wouldn't even buy a vacation property. Don't buy it. If you want to rent something there, you know, fine, because they can't, you know, somehow imply residency, but do not buy anything in the state. And I, you know, I feel badly for the people who still live there. I mean, they should get the hell out while they can, right? Because it's only going to get worse because here's what's going to happen. As more and more wealthy people leave the state of California and as no wealthy people move in, because, you know, people who accumulate a lot of wealth, they're pretty smart. And there's no way that anyone who's smart and wealthy is going to be dumb enough to move into California and, and, and create that nexus and allow these socialists in Sacramento uh, to have jurisdiction. But as no wealthy people are moving in and as the wealthy people who are there are moving out, what happens to the tax base, right? It deteriorates. So now they don't have as much revenue. So now what do they do? Now they got to turn up the heat on the people who haven't left. Right. So they're going to continuously raise taxes higher and higher on the wealthy people who are dumb enough to stay in the state. And so now more people leave. Right. Who? Well, the 16.8 percent income tax didn't uh, uh, chase you out. What about 20 percent? What about 25 percent? Hey, how long is that wealth tax going to stay at point four? 
How, what happens when it goes to 1% or 2%? And believe me, what happens when inflation right, pushes almost everybody? What happens when even the crappiest house in California, we have hyperinflation and every little shack is worth several, several million dollars. All of a sudden, a lot of uh, people are going to find that their net worths now somehow subjects them uh, to that wealth tax. And of course, once they set the bar at 30 million, who says they can't lower the bar to 25 million or 20 million, right? So, you know, as higher taxes cause people to leave, then the taxes have to be increased on those that remain. And so what that means is get the hell out now. Don't wait. Don't be the last person to leave the state of California and have to shut off the lights. Get out now. Just like I'm saying, don't be the last person to get out of the dollar. Don't be the last person to get into gold. Read the writing on the wall and act on it before other people can figure out what's clearly written. (laughs) 